Welcome to Impact, podcast ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. Impact features interviews with gifted Bible teachers who will help you gain a greater understanding of Scripture so that it has a greater impact on your life. The host of Impact is Mark Jenstead, the Staff Minister for Nurture at St. Andrew. Grace, mercy, and peace are yours through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here today. Today, we're back into Nehemiah. If you're able, open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll cover chapters 1 and 2 today. One of the main takeaways you'll get today are lessons on prayer and more history from our history teacher, Professor Paul Calpine from Martin Luther College. We'll join him in just a moment for part two of my conversation with him on Nehemiah. First, let's begin with a prayer. Dear Lord, sanctify us through the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. While I'm here, folks, I'd like to tell you that uh, next week, I'd like you to come back and listen. Uh, We'll be introducing a first-time guest, our new pastor here for service and outreach at St. Andrew in Middleton, Pastor Clinton Kreutziger will be here for the first time, and he and I will be sitting down and discussing the Lord's Prayer. So I hope you can come back and join us again here on Impact next week. And as always, I appreciate you telling others about this podcast ministry and saying a prayer for us that the Lord would continue to bless this ministry and bless the many guests that come on and share with us the knowledge that God has given them on the Holy Scriptures. One of those guests again, Professor Paul Kelpine. Last week we began. Today we'll finish our discussion on Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. So enjoy today's episode. Why do you study Nehemiah? You study Nehemiah because he's got a tough job among a difficult people in a difficult setting and context. And yet he works consciously and consistently along the way to bring the people an example of faith and action, to tell the people, let's return to the Word again, what does God say? And his example of leadership in, the, in a time of distress is enormous. And uh, he has people who are speaking ill of him from the outside, He's got enemies from the outside. He's got enemies even on the inside. And yet he retains a perspective of strength because God is the one who supplied that strength. All right, so here's, here's my first text question. Sure. Uh, verse 3, so Nehemiah is speaking here, and he says, They said to me, they are people that are back in Jerusalem. He gets word from folks that are back in Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survive the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. So that's the report that gets back to uh, Nehemiah. So the question is, what about this report that he received about the status in Jerusalem? Right. It impacts Um, him. Yeah, absolutely impacts him. If you go back to Ezra, so Ezra is, uh, will will, uh, be the history that, 
precedes the time of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, again, will be the mid-400s BC, so you're the early 400s. Uh, again, in the BC side of the timeline, if I say early 400s, now you're you're kind of, uh, you're at, you know, 490s, 480, you know, that sort of thing. What happens is that they are able to get the temple rebuilt, but if you read in Ezra, they are the people in and around Jerusalem are constantly, constantly being opposed by the peoples around them. And so what happens is Jerusalem itself uh, never becomes a secure place. And so he understands when, when he hears this, uh, look, the, the, the walls are broken down and the gates have been burned and so forth. There's enough opposition here that... Uh, even though we've got a temple where the focal point of worship is supposed to be, uh, J- Jerusalem, the city, is not a very secure place. And so nobody wants to live there. Nobody is... Uh, you get the impression that th- this is a people living in great anxiety because they have come back to basically re-inhabit a place that they had ha- inhabited some hundred-plus years ago. And stories are being told about them. And uh, remember, they had been driven into exile in a geopolitical contest when uh, the Babylonians came down into Jerusalem and wiped them out. Um, And partly they wiped them out because they were, you know, they were considered not people who were, were political allies. They were political enemies. Well, the Babylonians take and wipe out those political enemies. So uh, I would say it this way, Nehemiah hears a word that his own Jewish people who have returned are in a geopolitical mess, and, it's, and, and they're insecure, and they cannot do what they're supposed to do because of that insecurity. And I mentioned it had an impact on Nehemiah, uh, and this is what the scripture says in the very next verse, that when he heard these things, it says, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I know that's a key part of Nehemiah, the prayers, his prayer life. What is the role of prayer in the life of a Christian? Well, it's the exercise of faith. So uh, Nehemiah here is exercising his faith. Nehemiah here is, uh, because he has faith in the promises of God, that God is his Savior, Nehemiah is, uh, has an open pathway to God. Nehemiah's faith can speak to God as though he were speaking to his father. And he says to God, I, I mourn, I'm sad, this is difficult, it affects me, I'm anxious. You can just, you, you can tell, it's just, your stomach churns. It's like a parent who hears something about his uh Children who are living far away, and it's and it's uh, you know they're in a in a hurricane zone or something like that, and and inside of you you're all kind of anxious about how are they going to withstand this disaster or you know something terrible has happened uh, in 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 a, and and you can't do anything about it. You're a long way away. Nehemiah's feeling that I'm a long way away, and uh, yet these are my people. Now, so prayer, prayer says. For all of us who feel these anxieties, uh, 
bring all those anxieties on me, right? Cast all your cares on him. Uh, Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Nehemiah's name is, is about comfort. And where does he find his comfort? He finds it in Jehovah, in Yahweh. That's what Nehemiah means. I love the structure here of the prayer. He begins by acknowledging something about God, the great and awesome God. Yeah. And then, and then he confesses sin, his sin, the sin of the people, and then he gets to what he's asking for. Right? Look at verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of, of this, your servant, and, the, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then it, it closes with, I was cupbearer to the king. Right. So Nehemiah knows that he's in a position where he, he can maybe do something to help the folks back in, in Jerusalem, and, and it begins with prayer. And Nehemiah is a great example of prayer. You have recorded these longer prayers. This one here in chapter 1, you're going to have a very long prayer in chapter 9. Uh, they follow similar structures. And when I, when I teach this, I basically say many uh, structures of prayer, like this one's a prime example, follow the acronym ACTS. And the acronym ACTS means a prayer that begins with adoration, A, then goes to confession, C, then goes to thanksgiving, T, and finishes with supplication, S. What is supplication? Supplication is I'm bringing my requests. Uh, a supplication is a, so, so many, many years ago, some teacher told me a, a model prayer follows the format acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And this prayer is prime example. He starts with adoration. You're, an, you're a great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. I adore you, God, because you've done this. Um, I confess my sins. In, I, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. I'm not better than anyone else. I may be living long, long, long way away, but I recognize that some of this difficulty is the direct result of the sin. And then he has a thanksgiving section. It, it starts with, remember the instruction you gave Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you. But if you return to me and obey my commands, I will gather them and, and so forth. Uh, he's, he, why do I call that part of a thanksgiving? You'll notice this in the Old Testament prayers. And I do believe that this is a good thing to keep in mind with a New Testament way of approaching prayer. That they will go back to the recounting of history. And when I recount history, history is always, for the believer, the evidence of God's grace. So I have the evidence, Lord, that you have done what you said you would do. I have the evidence that you are a God of mercy who wants to save people and you want people to live in that confidence. So therefore, what I'm going to do is in my prayer, I'm going to say, God, I, I'm, I'm coming before you because I know and I am grateful and thankful for all of the times in the past when you have instructed your people, including me, when you have done what you said you would do. You've proven that again and again and again. Now, here's the present problem. 
I bring before you, be attentive to this prayer and the prayer of your servants and give success, like you just said. I want these people to be able to be secure, help that insecurity in Jerusalem, those walls being broken down and so forth. Make sure that uh, that 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 they are able to rebuild these walls and to live then again in security. Then he ends with that kind of stunning statement: "I was the cupbearer of the king." Yeah, what's the significance? Well, there's a lot of significance there. A cupbearer for a Persian king was one of your most respected and trusted people. You always, you know, sampled the wine. Somebody could poison you, right? So, yeah. it, it, so no king ever drank anything without somebody else sampling it before to see if somebody had put something in there. And so your most trusted confidant is the guy who's going to give you something to ingest, something to drink. Make sure that I don't. Uh, I'm not poisoned. The, the cupbearer takes takes the wine, the drink, and 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 if he doesn't drop dead, and if within... he doesn't, I mean, this is why your cupbearer is a confidant. Your cupbearer is somebody you respect. You have utmost trust that this person will never, ever be involved in any conspiracy. This person is truthful entirely. And so the character of Nehemiah must have been such that even the Persians, I mean, this is, he's not a Persian. He's a Jew who grew up in exile. But his character must have been such that even the Persian king, who happens to be at this time Artaxerxes I, so this is Artaxerxes. He's, uh, well, he's a, in, you go Cyrus, Darius, and then you get. Uh, Cambyses and then Smyrtus, who are very short reigns, and it's kind of a bit of a turmoil. And then Xerxes, Xerxes, the time of Esther, and then and then Artaxerxes, and uh, so Artaxerxes uh, is in the mid 400s, and he's the cupbearer to the king. Here's the, here's a stunning thing when you think about historical artifacts. In the British Museum, there is a drinking bowl that was excavated. Mm -hmm from ancient Persia. On the rim of that drinking bowl says, this is a drinking bowl of Artaxerxes I. That very drinking bowl may indeed have been in the hands of Nehemiah. And you know, when you look at it and you think that there's, there's a drinking bowl, a Persian drinking bowl that I know comes from the time of Artaxerxes I, same exact time as Nehemiah. It's, it, it, just, it's, it puts the artifact into a context. Brings history alive. Oh, it was, it's fascinating. to. I remember uh, when I, I was going through the ancient Near Eastern section of the British Museum, and uh, I was you know, looking and I was fascinated by these things, and all of a sudden a group came along, and the, this young man says, this is one of the most stunning artifacts we have up here. And so I stood back and I thought, what's he going to say? And he said, well, on the rim of this bowl, it says the drinking bowl of Artaxerxes, you know. And, uh, and then he said, well, those of you who know the scripture, the Bible, know that Nehemiah was the cupbearer of Artaxerxes. And then he said, this may have been in the very hands of Nehemiah. That, uh, that really really struck me. Yes, I bet it did. You, you probably had to bite your tongue. You probably wanted I probably, to say I, uh, I that. Say I waited for the group to, you know, walk away a bit. And then I, and then I looked at it and I, and I thought, wow, just look at that. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, Nehemiah was put in that position by God. For sure. It reminds me of Esther. Yes. Right? God's yeah. putting these people where he needs them to get done what he needs to get done for his people and his plan of salvation. Why the post-exilic history, why these post-exilic books are so meaningful. On a, on a, in an external way, it looks like things aren't going very well, like it's uh, chaotic or almost maybe even disastrous. And yet God has a plan and works his plan out to put people into positions, as the book of Esther says, who knows that you have come into a position for such a time as this, right? And so this is, this is Nehemiah's time and his position. Chapter 2, Nehemiah. The king asks Nehemiah, and you've identified as, as Artaxerxes, he asked Nehemiah what was bothering him. And before he answered, before he answered, it says he prayed to the Lord. Why did he, why did he say a prayer to the Lord before he answered the question of what was wrong with him? This is one of those things where uh, I, I call Nehemiah, not only does he give you examples of, uh, of uh, longer prayers which follow this kind of structure, but uh, Nehemiah, I say, is also the, the master of the quick prayer. And sometimes in life we do that. Uh, somebody asks us a difficult question, and there may be times when I say, Lord, in my mind, Lord, I'm praying. Give me the right words to say. How long did that take me to pray, and how long did it take me to think that? But that's a prayer. And, well, here's uh, another one. We got in the car yesterday in, in Madison, drove to New Alm. Uh, Jesus, keep us safe on the road today. Amen. There you go. And we say those things all the time, and that's fine. That's legitimate. And if there is an illustration and an example in the scriptures of somebody who uses those short prayers to just constantly, through the pattern of the day, uh, communicate with the God who directs life, it's Nehemiah. We don't have that many examples of people who do that, but we ourselves do that. You know, I, I sit down at a very difficult exam. A student does, you know, Lord, help me to do well on this and to not panic and and uh, that's it that's all I th that's all I'm thinking at that point in time uh, pastors before their sermons uh, I, athletes before a ball athletes game athletes before a ball game I, I you know you get in you get up into a pulpit and you look out and you think to yourself who am I that I should be the guy talking here uh, and then I say lord uh, these are your words, and may you, and by your Spirit, make these words meaningful and powerful and, 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 and effective. For I'm just the clay jar. I'm just the mouthpiece. It's, it's, it's your power, and I'm grateful to have this opportunity, but I'm nothing, and you are everything. And Paul says, pray continually. And it doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out prayer. It can be. That's fine. But, but those two, three, are four words. Lord, help. Amen. And it doesn't even have to be out loud. Right. <laughs> so, so okay. So why did... why did, Xerxes didn't hear this prayer. Right. Why, why did Nehemiah... I mean, what's going on here is, is what he's about to do okay. King, is me, dangerous, King, right? Well, kings of the Medes and Persians, uh, first of all, you could not approach. You read through Esther again, and you get a lot of insight into how Persian kings functioned. Um, you couldn't approach a king without being asked to do that. Uh, granted, this is his cupbearer, and uh, there was a reason for him to be in the presence of Artaxerxes at this point in time. But Artaxerxes, who knows him, I mean, he just knows what he looks like, and he and all of a sudden sees the, the face of Nehemiah's downcast in some way. 
uh, what's the matter? Uh, Lord, Lord, I prayed to the Lord, and then I answered. I mean, he said, Lord, give me the right words. And I want to answer because whatever I'm going to say here to the king is I'm saying more than just a personal thing. I'm talking on behalf of a people. I'm going to be talking about a, let's call it this in front of the king, a political situation, so to speak. So in verse four, folks, it says, the king said to me, what is, you, what is it you want? Then I pray to the God of heaven and I answer the king. And then he asks uh, what he asks of the king. And we're told that the king uh, granted Nehemiah's request. And then it says that Nehemiah gave credit to God for getting this positive response from the king. Here's what Luther said about this, Professor. Yeah. And I know you love Martin Luther. For sure. And so did your dad, right? (laughs) Yes, he did. (laughs) Uh, Luther wrote, let everyone apply this text to his own trials. That's simple. It's direct and great advice. Uh, So you look at what uh, uh, he says to him. If it pleases the king, may I have letters, you know, I, 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 it, it pleased the king then to send me, right? I, I asked, look, my, my people back there, I found favor in your sight. Let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. And what does he say? How long will your journey take? And it pleased the king to send me. And he says, well, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the other side of the Euphrates, the trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct when I arrive, so that they understand that I'm on a mission that has been directed by you, that I'm not a rogue person uh, that's, that's, that's trying to do something on my own. I've got your okay on this. And then I think, you know, what, what, what Luther's getting at also is not, not just to, uh, to go to God in prayer, when a situation is urgent and, and uh, to, to call on him for his help. And as you said, to give me the words to say, and then at, at look at the end of verse eight. Yeah. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Right. So he, he's acknowledging he under, what, what, what really happened here. You acknowledge the fact that the only reason this worked out well was because God allowed this to work out well. Uh, that's how life is for all of us. The reason why things work out the reason why things, you know, that, that God allows us to remain, um, no matter what setting I'm in, no matter what challenge I face, I'm not walking that alone. And God is directing things. Um, and, and I think when you have that overall perspective in mind, you do, as, as Luther said, you acknowledge this. I mean, please, let's acknowledge that in our lives how these things have been directed by a good and gracious and merciful God. I deserve nothing, and yet in his mercy and his grace, he has given me faith to trust and faith to believe. Um, He has given me perspective on life. He has put me in positions where I need to step up and give me the strength to step up and say what needs to be said. Do what needs to be done. Folks, I encourage you, of course, to read through uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. And what you'll find is Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem. So now he has the support of the king. He's got permission from the king. 
The king basically has his back, the Persian king. So Nehemiah returns, but it's still not going to be a slam dunk here. He, he faces all this opposition. So here's the question, professor. And you'll see this, folks, as you read through chapter two. Why are these local officials back near Jerusalem? Why are they threatened by Nehemiah's return? Right. The, 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 the ones that will be brought up time and again, verse 10, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. Then you're also going to read in uh, uh, chapter 2 at the very kind of toward the end of it, Sanballat again, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. Those three guys are always the opposing people. And uh, Sanballat and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab, these are people who live in the surrounding territories. They're leaders, presumably, of, uh, of uh, peoples who, who live around. The Ammonites were on the, uh, if you look at a map in the Jordan River that runs between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, uh, the Ammonites are on the eastern side of that, okay? That's where the Ammonites are. The Arabs, of course, be a bit south of that, uh, perhaps down toward the Arabian Peninsula. And uh, uh, the Horonites uh, were people that lived in the general vicinity there. These people are opposing it because uh, uh, they do not want the Hebrews, the Jewish people returning from exile, to create some kind of uh, significant empire, so to speak, or significant block of people. So they will say constantly to the Persian king, well, do, you, do you know what these people have done? I mean, these are the kinds of oppositions that, you know, do you know who these people are that you're granting the allowance to rebuild the wall? Look, these are not people who are thinking theologically about God's mission and end goal. These are people who are opposing... Um, foreigners who somehow now have come back and now are claiming this 100 years, 100 plus years later as their own, and they don't like that, and they don't want that. And uh, so they're looking out for themselves, and, uh, and, uh, and, and they don't want uh, these Jewish people to somehow become perhaps powerful enough to put them in a political or economic bad spot. Okay, that makes sense. We can understand that, their perspective. How about verse 12? That phrase in there is, is intriguing. So this is Nehemiah again, speaking of himself. I set out during the night with a few others, and I had not told anyone about what my God had put in my heart yeah. to do for Jerusalem. God had put this in his heart. Right, and, and, and so you see the expressions here in Nehemiah, these expressions of of how faith understands God's work in their lives. So a person who lives in faith is a person who's speaking with his father, his, you know, is rich in prayer. A person who lives in faith recognizes that uh, God is the one who has given him faith. God is the one who sustains him in faith. The, the spirit uh, you know, calls, gathers, enlightens, sanctifies, you know, does all those things and keeps us in the true faith. God is the one who is guiding my life. Um, and I know that I'm not doing this for myself. I'm not doing this so that all these people can say, look at Nehemiah. I'm doing this because God has a purpose. And I just so happen to be the person whom God has said, I, I go back assist these people, 
you have, I have made it so that the Persian king is going to support you. And even though there's all kinds of opposition that surrounds them, um, I have work for you to do. And so it, it's God who, it's his way of acknowledging that faith is not something he came to, and nor was this his idea. This was something God put into his heart as an exercise of his faith. And God works like that in our lives, right? He puts things in our heart, doesn't he? He, he does. I don't always, I'm not always conscious of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I can speak that way. I, I guess I would say this. I don't want to, um, I, I don't want to become sort of what I might say hyper pious in the sense that I think that absolutely anything and everything I ever do is something God puts into my heart. I still am a sinful human being who struggles mightily with my sinful nature. And so I, my sinful nature might, uh, I, I'll put it this way. It would be a, a, a very, and by the way, I've actually heard this. So this is why I'm going to use this. Uh, a marriage broke up. And a, one of the partners in this marriage uh, says, God put it in my heart to leave this. No, <laughs> I don't know that God puts it in your heart that this might be the right thing to do. But it was a way of not being able to even discuss or talk to that person because that person is speaking to me, the pastor, and saying, God put it in my heart to do this. Um, that's why I say I, uh, I can't use that as uh, a statement that every decision I make somehow now has been directed by God. That's not true. Some decisions I make are actually decisions that the sinful nature has put in my, you know, the Satan and whispers in my ear that you deserve better than this or you should do this and convinces me that this isn't. Uh, an activity of faith. It may be safer to say that when God puts things in our hearts, he does it through his word. Precisely. I, the only thing we know about God is what he's revealed, and what he's revealed is in his word, right? So that phrase makes me anxious once in a while because I've heard it used to defend things that I would say are unscriptural or unsound in terms yeah. of a life of faith. All right. Fair comment. Thank you. So after uh, Nehemiah's covert operation of inspection, he reveals his plans in verse 17, and the people of Jerusalem agree to his plan. Uh, here's verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. So he has his mind made up. That's what we're going to do. And the people agree. Right. You know, I, I, and, and he also then, the expression in 18 is really good too. And then I also told him that the gracious hand of my God was upon me and what the king had said to me. Uh, he's, he's underscoring, look, people, I didn't come here as uh, somebody who just had some wild idea. I'm not coming here because I want to be king and I want to exercise power. I'm coming here because this is, an, this is something God had uh, allowed to happen through my position and role as cupbearer to Artaxerxes. I said to Artaxerxes, I'd like to be part of the rebuilding of this wall because the people need security. Artaxerxes agrees to that. And I let the people know I'm not here on my own terms. 
I'm here on God's terms. How about verse 20? The God of heaven will give us success. There he's talking to those who are opposing him. You know, those, those fellows you mentioned earlier, he says, well, the God of heaven is going to give us success. Right. Uh, look at what, what, what Tobiah and, and Sanballat and Geshem, they, they kind of ridiculed them. and says, what, what is this you're doing? You know, are you rebelling against the king? And, uh, and, and he is as direct and straightforward as possible. The Lord, uh, the God of heaven, will give us success, as you just said. And we, our servants, will start rebuilding. Uh, but as you say, you have, uh, but as for you, rather, you have no share in Jerusalem or a claim or a historic right to it. He's taking it back to the Mosaic Covenant. He's taking it back, actually, to the Abramitic thing, right? God promised this land. God promised that this land will be instrumental in what he will bring. Ultimately, he will bless all nations through things that will happen through this people. The Savior is going to come through the Jewish people, period. Not through the Ammonites, not through the Horonites, not through the Arabs, but he will be the Savior of the world. He has to be born of some people. God in his mercy chose the line of Abraham. Here's the last question. Why is it not an overstatement to say that Satan is hard at work here, attempting to derail God's plan of salvation? And this is such an overt episode. I mean, Satan is uh, working hard to oppose people on the outside. How many people are going to stand up to this kind of opposition? Our tendency is to say, <laughs> okay, we'll just leave Jerusalem the way it is. I mean, I don't want to deal with people who are talking like this. I don't like ridicule. Uh, I don't like ridicule for, for just standing up for my faith. Um, this is one of those times when this is what God has directed us to do, to rebuild and to follow Mosaic custom in worship and so forth. Therefore, I must obey God rather than men in the sense that I, I, I know this is God's purpose. And so uh, I'm not rebelling here. I'm just standing up. You know, this is not an instance where somehow the opposition is in the right. The opposition is in the wrong. The actual king has said, go back and do this. And But it's very difficult to stand up in the face of opposition. And the tendency is to kind of shrink back and say, if that's the way it's going to be, I'd rather be somebody who can live every day and look at my neighbors and say, you know, these are their neighbors. The Horonites and Ammonites and so forth surround them. These are their neighbors. I'd rather be somebody who can look at my neighbors and 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 not have to not have to deal with it in a difficult way. Instead, he just says it as plainly as possible. No, I mean the next thing that these opposers are going to do is like, maybe we should help you in chapter three. Yeah, maybe we should help you. And you know he sees through that and he says, no, you don't really want to help us. You want to be on the inside and kind of bring this thing down. The, the most bizarre part of this all is that Tobiah, by the end of the book, Nehemiah goes home to Persia and to see, to check in with Artaxerxes. And when he leaves, he says, I want to make sure that, that everything's going to be okay. And I want you to do this and this and this. And they say, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. Go back home to Artaxerxes. 
Okay. When he returns to Jerusalem after this hiatus back in with Artaxerxes, the people have given Tobiah, this very guy, a storeroom in the temple complex. Why? And what does that say? It says that, you know, we just want to be part of society out here and we don't want to stick out and we don't want to be looked at as though people that we're being quote rigid about anything um so we're going to just say i'm going to be progressive enough i'm going to be enlightened enough that i'm going to say to tobiah this former enemy or what i don't know what his intentions are but i'm going to be nice enough to you that i'm going to actually give you a storeroom in the temple and when Nehemiah comes back, he said, what are you doing? Uh, I, I think that's, that's, that's so incredibly striking. Um, part of the reason why we can't completely take every lesson of history from this and apply it to ourselves is because we don't any longer live under the Mosaic law. So uh, because it's been fulfilled in Christ, we don't live with the uh, worship regulations or other kinds of regulations to keep them as a separate people. I mean, they really did have those regulations that they had to live under. Um, and that, that was put into place until such time as the Savior would come because the Savior is going to come from this people. But uh, so we can't take every lesson and say, well, it's now so therefore we should, you know, be be exactly like Nehemiah. But what you can learn from Nehemiah is when God's word is clear on something. He stands up for it. He doesn't say, I would rather just give in and allow the people I, I want to blend in with society when truthfully the exercise of our faith is not very easily going to blend in with a society that isn't necessarily going to be following God's will. This is what makes Nehemiah, the study of the book and, and his role and his place, such a fascinating thing. All right. Well, I think we've come to the end of our conversation. Uh, thank you, Professor, for your time and your insight and your willingness to share today. And I'll let you get back to correcting your tests. <laughs> I've got many papers to read and many, to read. many tests to give. Yes, we're, we're right on the edge of semester test week. So. And we'll have to figure out what, what you and I can do next time. We've done now Isaiah and Malachi and Nehemiah. Maybe we, maybe we can see if there are any other lessons in Nehemiah. All right. That sounds good, too. So again, thank you and God bless your ministry here at Martin Luther College. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And folks, I'll leave you with these words from Nehemiah. The good hand of God is upon you. Thank you for listening to Impact, a ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. If you have a question or feedback to share, send an email to impact at saint-andrew-online.org. Please tell your friends and family about Impact and keep this ministry in your prayers. Impact is new every Monday, and all past episodes are available. The greater you understand Scripture, the greater impact it will have on your life.